Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. This episode is part two of a podcast we did last June on the book Border Hacker, a tale of treachery, trafficking, and two friends on the run. While I do suggest you go back and listen to that episode, and read the book for that matter, it is a brilliant page-turner, this episode can stand on its own merit. Authors Axel Kirchner and Levi Vonk describe how they met during a migrant caravan in 2015 and their unlikely friendship, unlikely yet, I would say, beautiful friendship that emerged from that. Um, this is, in fact, the first interview, and I'm proud to say this, this is the first interview that has been done with Axel, who was born in Guatemala, but grew up on Long Island and was deported as an adult back to Guatemala. Since the book's publication, Axel has been in hiding due to threats on his life. And so he is doing this this interview from an undisclosed location. What follows is a very detailed, intimate, and frank account of the book and what has happened since. It's often rendered, I should warn you, with explicit language. Welcome, Axel and Levi, to the Border Chronicle podcast. It's great to actually have you back. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. And, and in fact... um. Axel, this is this is your first time on the podcast. So we did do a podcast um, on Border Hacker, um, but now we're doing part two. And we're definitely going to be talking about the book the whole time, but not going as thoroughly into the book um, as we did the first time. But first, since we have Axel, Axel, for those of the, the listeners who haven't yet heard, you know, or read Border Hacker or or heard our first podcast at the Border Chronicle, how would you, how would you explain the book in a couple sentences? You know, what is the book about? Well, the most important thing about this book is about love, friendship. That's, that's all about, that's, that's what it is. And all I can tell you is, I mean, look at Levi, man. And look at me. And still we're, we're all around and, and, and fighting against something that is extremely fucked up. Sorry about my bad words, man, but that's the way it is. You know, that's the way I speak. So, love, friendship, and that—that's what I can tell you, man. Yeah, I mean that is certainly something that I got from the book. You know, especially towards the end. Um, and I wonder, you know, how is it? about that like what happened how did you and levi meet well there's a brief part that is missing and that part begins from where i started chasing the caravan which was a which is a, a caravan of migrants right in the year right now it's called the caravan at that moment i didn't even know what the fuck was that you know i, I just heard the word that there was a whole bunch of people going through like checkpoints and all that. And I wanted to be safe. You know? so I wanted to go ahead and just speak to the whole group and be like unaware in the middle of everyone else. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, oh, I got to catch up to them. But in the meantime, like 
in that process, I saw some horrible shits that, you know, I got kids, man. And when I saw Levi, and I grew up with most white people in, you know, in Long Island, in New York, you know what I'm saying? So you grew up in New York. Yeah. You grew up in New York, but you're chasing a caravan in Mexico in 2015. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was taken into New York when I was like one, right? And then I got to Puerto when I was like an all grown up ass man. And while I was chasing this group where Levi was, I didn't know he was there, right? So I wanted to go ahead and catch up to that group. But in the process of getting there, Get in there to that group. I saw some horrible shit. I saw like things that are unimaginable. You know what I'm saying? And when I reached, when I finally finally got the chance to reach Levi and I spot him out, surrounded by all the bad, bad, bad guys. I mean, whatever, man. I mean, that you never know what's on the car on a caravan, right? I was like, wait, what is this guy doing here? You know what I'm saying? And were you coming from when you were deported? You were deported to Guatemala, so you're coming from Guatemala and trying to get back to your home in Long Island, and uh, and you're in southern Mexico, and you're coming up through southern Mexico, following a caravan, and that's when you, when you caught up to the caravan, that's when you met Levi. Could you was are you able to just maybe allude or or speak to some of the Things that you might have seen before, right before getting to Levi. Oh man, can we be graphic? Um, see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you you can. I mean, just like yeah, yes, and maybe you could tell the story, maybe in a, just a couple sentences. What I'm trying to say is, like, I saw, I saw girls being raped. And I saw men's being raped. Kids, you know what I'm saying? And by by a far distance, just staring at them and, and not being capable of doing nothing, just keep going, you know what I'm saying? So with that being said, man, this is more than enough to be graphic. Like I can't I can't even imagine myself telling you what I found while going through the jungle. But if you want me, I can say it. You know what I'm saying? We once stumbled up on a piece of fucking flesh, a human flesh. And we were like, oh, well, we got to move. You know what I'm saying? That's the type of things that you see. And when I got there, I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. I don't even know what in the fuck am I, but I got to catch up to them. And when I catch up to them, all I saw was, you know, people like me, people that, that's got my skin color. And the only guy that was there showing up and, and, and just pretty much shining was Levi. I was like, oh my God, what is this guy doing here? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I was shocking. I was shocking. And then the second thing that came to my mind, and I never said it, but, you know, he was just a kid. You know what I'm saying? At that time. How old were you, Levi? Were you? I was 24 at the time. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that could be probably my son. So... I got I to gotta stick to this guy. You know what I'm saying? Hang out with him. At least if they see him with me, I mean, they, they won't fuck with him. You know what I'm saying? And it kind of helped out, right, Levi? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if, if you're old enough where I could have been your son, but yeah, we, we have a, a gay, an age gap, and, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, how yeah. old are you? At, how old were you, Axel, at the time? Thirty-seven, man. Thirty-seven. And how old are you both now? Oh, I'm forty-three almost. <laughs> I, I'm I'm thirty-two now. So it's been quite it's been quite a while since mm-hmm. obviously 2015. Sometimes mm-hmm. for some reason 2015 just seems like yesterday or something. I don't know why. The pandemic screwed up all of I our guess. sense of time. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, yeah. You know what's the funny thing that for some people like like you guys. It seems like, oh, it's been a long time. But for me, it keeps being the same shit. So I'm like, fuck. <laughs> like you feel like you're, you feel like it's the same. I'm on ground zero. Like I'm seeing shit. I'm leaving it. I'm, I'm right here. You know what I'm saying? I get to see what the fuck is going on at any single minute. Like Part of, I think, writing the book was to express that kind of temporality of statelessness. That no matter where you are and what country you're in you get stuck in this in this every day it feels like the same day and you take one step forward and you immediately slide back it's a sisyphean task and we really tried to portray that and i think actually you do a very good job portraying that like in your own voice that kind of lived experience hopefully man hopefully so so you met in that in the during that caravan but when did you like how long did it take to go hey uh did you like decide that you're going to write a book together or did it just kind of come in pieces or how did that part of it happen? In my way of thinking, I was looking at Levi like a guy that could have been my neighbor or a guy that could have been going through, you know, part of high school where I, when I was in high school, you know what I'm saying? So I was so like, I felt like home, you know what I'm saying? By having him there and speak the same language, we were like, Oh, God, thank God. Somebody that understands exactly what the fuck is going on and can probably give me a tip of what the fuck am I supposed to do? You know what I'm saying? I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) So from there, we just created a bind. You know what I'm saying? Like, dude, like, he knew a little bit more about what I knew about Mexico. And still, I get lost with a few words sometimes. Because the Spanish I spoke was Puerto Rican and, and, and Cuban. You know what I'm saying? And Dominican. And when I got here, man, I started learning that, you know, pirujo mean or, or meant that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fuck boy. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, what in the world is that Spanish? So it wasn't that easy for me too, even though I speak the language. You know what I'm saying? And with Levi, I felt like I was home. I felt like I had someone that could have probably, at least if something happened to me, I could have, relay a message to him and he could have like send a message to my mom you know what i'm saying so you know there's a whole bunch of things that go through your mind at that specific that went through my mind at that specific moment bro that's that's a good point to bring up and something i've totally forgotten but in the beginning we weren't thinking about writing a book but it was about trying to convey messages to family members that's kind of how it started you're very worried about your safety and we started recording this almost as a message to your family, to your kids, if you can't tell them this story, maybe I could with your voice. Um, And maybe you want to talk more about that specifically, like how we started thinking about recording and writing the book together. Well, if I'm not mistaken, bro, it all came up when we started noticing a whole bunch of shit. Weird shit. Is at the beginning, Todd, we were like, 
wait, hold on, let's go ahead and stick to these guys. They're doing a great job. But Levi was already there and he was already noticing some weird shit. You know what I'm saying? At that moment, it didn't click. Neither one of us. But then we started noticing like the priest Alejandro Salalinda wasn't who he was supposed to be at the beginning. And you want to know why? Because I did some crazy shit, man. You know, my biggest quality is pretty much hacking every fucking device that it's in, that it's in my hands. Which comes off quite clearly in the book, right? Your talents in this in that realm. Yeah. But go ahead. So, so he sees me doing this shit, and he talks to me. You, can I just to give the listeners, you know, you're in Oaxaca, right? And uh, the shelter in Oaxaca. Yeah. And and you're and you're in Alejandro Solalinde's. He's the he's a priest, right? A priest, but who's been the top figure in. In uh, what is it? Is it a network, right? Yeah. What is he, it called again? He, he has a humanitarian network called Hermanos en el Camino, Brothers on the Road or Brothers on the Path. And it's one of the most celebrated humanitarian networks in all of Latin America. Okay. And so, so you were there and you, and Axel, you say that you started seeing some, some weird stuff. Oh, I witnessed this. I like, I witnessed the whole damn thing. You know what I'm saying? Because at some point, you know, I was granted access to places where no one else could have been granted access to because of what I knew how to, you know, what I knew, what I know how to do. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, fuck, man. And then I started talking, I started telling Levi, right? Yo, bro, what, what the fuck is going on? I mean, Beto, who was this guy who was supposed to be taking care of girls, helping fix them documents and everyone else was asking for sexual favors. These other dudes were asking for drinks, exploiting migrants, telling them, okay, so call your parents, tell them to send your money, and let's go have some fun. So I was like, everybody's just fucking everybody else. You know what I'm saying? So so those are those are all people that were part of the shelter and part of the Camino. Exactly. And then I have Alejandro Solalina approaching me, telling me, yo, I need you to go ahead and look after me. I got bad people from the government investigating me. And I want you... I want you to go ahead and see if you can stick around and have you on my team. I was like, hell no. I'm going back to my kids. You know what I'm saying? I'm playing that game. And from there on, since I rejected him, it was hell. It was hell, man. Yeah, so was it um, basically in that hell, right? That in the terms of like going, oh my God, we got to, we got to, document this or we gotta write a book or how did you gotta understand something i might be educated in computers i mean talk to me about computers that's that's my world levi was the expert that i don't know how the fuck he came up with that brilliant idea of documenting recording filming doing a whole bunch of shit to go ahead and have proof you know what i'm saying levi did you go and propose it or did you just start did you I, start like I was doing ethnographic work with migrants, so I had a recorder, I had a camera. I, I didn't I wasn't trained to do field work previously. I was just kind of rolling with things. But yeah, as Axel says, things weren't adding up. Um I had seen some other things before I met Axel. Um but then once Axel started kind of really becoming entwined into the into this very prestigious humanitarian network, 
um, he was telling me, look, like, like, you know, I'm being asked to do explicitly illegal things and I don't really feel like I can say no. And I thought, okay, I don't know what to do, but I have this recorder, I have this camera, I'll take photos of you that, so we have documentation that you are in these places when you said that you were there and, you know, we'll do interviews and we'll have that. And then things really changed though, when, and this is part of the book, but Axel, um, through a series of events, the caravan ends, he's running through the jungle on his own again, he busts his knee, and we reach out to this humanitarian network who previously said that they would help you, right, Axel, if, um, if you ever needed help. We, we called them up, and this man named Armando Vilchis uh, offered to pick Axel up, and he said, I'll, I'll take, I run a shelter, I'll take him to my shelter, and I thought, great, like, we've solved this problem. We didn't know him at the time, we just knew he was part of the network. Well, Axel ended up being kidnapped, and the man forced Axel to hack other government officials. And when that happened, he was telling, I mean, Axel, I mean, you can say even more about this, but he was, he was telling you, like, don't try to go to the police, because I know the police. Like, if you try to report me, I'll just get you deported. And then, so we thought, well, what are we going to do? We can't, like, we can't tell the police. We tried to raise the alarm inside the humanitarian network. No one listened to us. They said, stop talking about it. So, well, how else do we get the word out, right? And so we started trying to talk about, like, maybe writing a book. But I don't know, Axel, if you want to say more about that. because Absolutely, I mean, man. I got a whole bunch of stuff to say. Like, yeah. let me ask you this. Is it okay if I come up with the name of one of the government officials that I was forced to have? It begins with uh, the M. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, yeah, but may, like, you know, we've had to leave out certain things in our book because we're worried <clears throat> about certain people suing us and whatever. So maybe don't name the name, but yeah, I mean, you can say you're, you're, talk about it generally. Just to give you a, like, I, I, I gotta be brief, but I wanna be brief. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm the ghetto nigga. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, yo, Todd, man, um, when I was kidnapped, I was bitten. I was like forced to work for a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't exactly what I was there for and lie to so many institutions like government institutions to go ahead and request money for this guy, for Armando Bilches. You would you would be paraded around by people like Armando and this happens frequently I've seen migrants get stuck in these situations, people professing to help them, but really they, they lock them inside and then they'll take them around periodically to churches, to government buildings, parade them around, and the migrants are forced to sing their praises to collect donations. Is, and, is Armando, is he, uh, was he the, sorry for the clarification, but in the book, is he the the mechanic? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah man, so it, it's it's been hell. It's been hell for me, man. For me and Levi, man. We've been through hell. It's so, like, the book itself, how many years did it take to write? Was it seven years? Seven years from when we we met, basically, yeah, to publication date. Did you go into the idea, like, thinking that you would collaborate on it? Or how did that, how did you come up with with what became the final product of how you collaborated? Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, like uh, I had no yeah, no intention of writing a book with anyone in the beginning. Um, and then we thought, well, maybe we write a book to raise the alarm. And so I had all these interviews. Axel and I would stay up all night talking and interviewing and recording. And, and I was like, OK, well, like, what am I going to do? I tried to put like I first started trying to write a book um, just in my voice. And it wasn't working. And I realized, I was like, there's no way I can portray, I mean, you guys could hear it now, this podcast, like the way Axel talks, the life and the vibrance in his voice, the intelligence and ingenuity of his language doesn't just come through if I'm quoting him. Like it comes off stilted, you know, I needed to figure out a way to um, give him more space to say what he wanted to say on his own terms. So I thought, well, why don't Axel and I just write, like, I'll, you know, let's sit down and Axel, you try to write something. Like, let's let's go over transcribed interviews that we've done, see if we can rearrange and clean up the language and see if something emerges from that. And that's, I think, when we really started rolling. I mean, that's, I don't know if that's how you feel, but. Um, yep. Yeah. Because then on the page, you can be like. Dude, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, I, I remember several discussions where you, I think, maybe more explicitly saying something like, dude, fuck you. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to tell you the real deal. And that's, I thought that was the best part. So it was like, okay, I need to get that in the in the book. Yeah. So, like, just thinking about, like, the, you know, the book and and how it sort of, like, landed, like, a, like this, you know, it landed, you know, with a, with, you know, on, in last April and, um, and, and got, you know, a lot of feedback and, uh, uh, like, could you, could you all talk about some of the things that, you know, like the responses that how people, that people have had, um, from your book, um, uh, whether they be positive, whether they be critical, whether you have anything to say about anything that how people have responded to the book, I would like to give you some space right now to do that. You want to go for it? What do you want to say? You want me to go? No, no, no. What you want to say, Axel? Go for it. What I wanted to say is that it's funny to go ahead and see articles that talk about how we have been so mean to several people that are like, you know, human rights defenders, right? They keep doing the same thing over and over, man. They're just using migrants. And if you have not been on the field like we have been on the field, bro, I mean, it kind of it kind of ruins the whole, the whole the whole thing. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think some of our frustration. First, I want to say a lot of the feedback has been really positive, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, we've had people reach out, not just from the U.S., but uh, the book is starting to make the rounds in Mexico now, and a lot of migration scholars and migration journalists, people on the ground who are also trying to do the work are reaching out, saying they really like it, saying they want to teach it. They say they want to, you know, talk to Axel and I more about the things that we've seen. So that's been really wonderful. But but there has been some some criticism, one of which is, Axel, you mentioned, like, um, that we have somehow been unfair to humanitarian activists, uh, that we haven't portrayed them um, kindly enough or something. And, like, uh, um, it's frustrating. This book in part is supposed to be an expose of deep um, wrongs uh, that are happening in Mexico. And when you write an expose, you don't normally talk about all the good things that you see. And there are good things and 
activists that I admire who are doing good work in Mexico. But that wasn't the point of the book, because the point of the book was to talk about these incredibly celebrated humanitarians with huge amounts of resources um, at their disposal um, who are exploiting migrants. And no one is really following up on it in a way that either Axel and I feel like they should. Um, does that sound right to you, Axel? Yeah, absolutely, man. You just aimed it. I, I mean, part of, part of my frustration as well was, um, you know, there are certain things that we, we couldn't put in the book. So, the, for instance, one of the main characters that we try to um, talk about is this, this person named the attorney. She framed herself as an immigration attorney. Um, and our, again, our lawyers asked us to take her name out. We had a more extensive talking about her background and who she was, and we can't say a lot. But, but I think we can say she's not an immigration attorney. Uh, and I think some of our critics maybe didn't understand that. Maybe that was on us. We should have made it more clear. But this is just an incredibly wealthy person, well-connected in elite Mexican society, who's gone out of her way to claim migrant rights as a kind of bauble on her resume, so that she can get other opportunities and work her way up the ladder in elite Mexican society. Very, very few people, and Axel, maybe you want to attest to more of this on the ground, like ever benefited from any of her activism. Um, Axel, you certainly didn't. And maybe you can talk about what, uh, what kind of things that she asked you to do, the kind of uh, exploitative uh, situation she put you in. Well, this is the lady... <clears throat> It forced me to go ahead and stick a fucking cell phone in my ass to go ahead and snick it into the fucking jail cell of one of the famous and one of the most famous senators right now in office. Y'all know her name. It's on the book. Nestora Salgado. And if you had been caught sneaking that cell phone into the high security prison, what would have happened to you? Imagine that. If I wouldn't done it, then she would have fucking got me killed. Why did you? Why did she want you to do that to begin with? Well, what happens is that, like Levi says, she's climbing up the ladder so badly, man. Her husband is like, woof, big baller. You know what I'm saying? And uh, the only way she, the, the only what she wanted to do, is she wanted to go ahead and just. The way I saw it and I felt it, right, man, I can't can't disclose this because it's too too vivid, too dangerous, man. I, I'm, I'm sorry, man. I guess I'm going to have to give you some hints of why she did it, right? But she wanted power, more power. She wanted to go ahead and get hooked on the government side. Let's just, uh, yeah, let's I, just I, leave it at that, you know? Uh, unfortunately, yeah, our, our attorneys have again said that we have to, we can't disclose certain things about her because then it could be openly identifying her and we could be sued. But I think what we can say is that her husband is a very, very powerful person in Mexico and she was using her activism with migrants in ways to also greatly benefit his career in ways that I think had nothing to, this man is not involved in migrant politics. You know what I mean? He, and he doesn't care about migrants. Um, and, and, and so th there are these kinds of things, but regardless, I, I know it, it may, I'm sorry that we can't ex give more details here, but, but what we're trying to say in regard to these humanitarian politics and why we felt it was so important to write about them was that if you consider the long tradition of politics in Latin America, of radical politics, radical organizing, leftist 
fighting, um, you know, armed struggle, socialist struggle in Latin America. What we're seeing today, and I think uh, I'm sorry to get a little academic here, uh, but I consider, and Axel and I have talked about this before, uh, some of what's happening within the humanitarian realm in Latin America as being part of what the, the thinker Frederick Jameson would describe as an anti-politics machine. So what that means is that we don't have to worry about what's happening in Latin America, all the exploitative things that are going on, because a humanitarian over there is figuring it out. Don't worry, the humanitarians have it under control. But actually what we're saying is they don't, right? And, and us just naturally giving these organizations the benefit of the doubt squanders a really beautiful political potential that happened with migrant caravans, that happened with people like Axel who are traveling through the country and want to make a difference and have all these skills. Suddenly, they get wrapped up in this very weird humanitarian system and they can't make the same kind of political claims anymore for themselves. They can't, they can't advocate for themselves in the same ways. And actually, they end up being exploited. And so, you know, we've been criticized in the past that we're not listening to humanitarians enough or we're not being nice enough to them. But what we're trying to say is, look, sure, there are some humanitarians who have good intentions, um, but good intentions aren't enough, actually. Like what we've seen with Father Solalinde's trajectory is that this is a person who's been massively celebrated, won all kinds of international human rights awards. And what did it do in the end? It propelled him to a top-level government position where he can help design a mass deportation program on behalf of the United States that he is unapologetic about. So good intentions aren't enough. We need to see more. And what we've seen out of the last decade of migrant organizing with humanitarians is very little on the ground benefit for migrants themselves. And that's what we wanted to, to talk about most. You know, but. Could I ask a, a, clarif a clarifying question? So when, so talking about, when you talk about humanitarians, right, there's, it's a, it's like a concept, right? That's probably not monolith, right? Um, so what, so when I, so when I, when I hear you say it, I, I hear you more speaking to like the power networks, you know, the kind of, humanitarian power networks that you you encountered in in powerful ones right that you encountered in border hacker but uh but um not necessarily everyone that falls under the umbrella of a humanitarian right oh um, absolutely no i mean i think you know axel and i i mean both have met really wonderful people trying to do wonderful work like and they are it, god bless them think it's a hard terrible job and we need people to be doing it. I'm not trying to say every person who enters into the humanitarian whatever is a bad person. I mean, again, part of the book is me trying to do that work um, in Washington, D.C., right? And, and I make very clear in the book, like the attorneys who are trying to do this humanitarian work, they have the best intentions. But there's a structure that's created, regardless of good intentions, that leads to massive exploitation of migrants. Um, and I think one of our questions, Axel, is like, well, what if you step outside of that structure? Like, this is a book about two people who say, okay, like the humanitarian thing in this normative way, we're not doing it anymore, right? Um, and, and what happens then? What changes about your relationship? What changes about politics when you say that? Um, I don't know, Axel, if you have any, anything else to say about that, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop talking now. No, it's all good, man. But I mean, we all in the same boat. I mean, at the end of the day, bro, nobody's doing nothing. 
Well, you did. So effectively, you did step out of that structure, right? And so can you talk about that too? Like, um, really, the book is stepping out of that structure. And that's one of the things that you published the book. And what happened after that? Or go ahead, Axel. It looks like you have something to say. It's costing me my life. It's costing, it's just, it, it, it cost Levi's life, you know, almost. Because he had a police officer right there. And still they tried to break into his apartment. And this was after the book the after the book was published, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you had a police Levi, you had a police officer. I had I had a police patrol. So yeah, let's hear. So a couple nights before the book is published, which I think is important to note. So even before the book is published, someone in Mexico learned that it was about to be published. We have our suspicions who, but again, we prefer not to name their names. But I think if you read our book, you can, you'll, you can guess. There's not that many people. Um, we received a death threat that said that they were going to chop Axel into pieces and leave him on my doorstep, essentially. Which is, uh, the inference is that this is how cartels kill people. So the person who sent the threat is saying that they have cartel ties. They have enough money and resources to find where Axel is, find where I am, and kill us. And the government of Mexico City thought the threat was credible enough that they gave me a police patrol stationed outside my building to guard my building. All day, Um, all night? um, Well, I think that was the idea. I don't know if that actually happened in practice, but that was the idea. Um, And uh, then... Uh, I don't, I I can't remember the timeline is a little hazy, but say like a month or so in, uh, actually, I think it's good if we tell the story together, actually. So I, I got this text message, um, and I'd been expecting a picture from a, an unknown number. And I very stupidly, even after working with a migrant hacker for many years, clicked on the link. (laughs) And as, as soon as I clicked, I thought I've been fished. This is not. And for people who don't know, phishing is when you click a link like this and as soon as you click it, the hacker has access to all of your information. I know this very well because Axel did it to me when we first met and also went through all my stuff. Um, But so Axel, so I click on this link and then I like, I'm not joking, like maybe two minutes later, but probably even less time, you call me and and what do you say? I was like, yo, man, I just got the weirdest the weirdest message on earth. You know what I'm saying? I was like, who the fuck in Mexico City has my number to begin with? You know what I'm saying? Because you had just gotten a new SIM card. You only had like yeah, two yeah. people in the world who knew your number. And you the, get... only, the only one that had it, it was you. I was like, what the fuck? And then so you get this weird. And fortunately, thank God, you were like, this is weird and you don't click. But it's very clear to me that someone went through my contacts, found your contact information, and then tried to fish you too. And if they had done that, they would have known your location. This is a month after the book was published? Mm-hmm. So in, we're talking May of 2022, right? Mm-hmm. And at that time, Axel, your location, your location was not known. Were you, in, would, you, would it be fair to say you were in hiding at the time? Or where was your location in that moment? Yeah, I had to move, and you, 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 basically, it wasn't easy, man. I still don't have any documents. I ain't got shit. Nobody's helping me. I don't exist. That's why you see my name right there. You know what I'm saying? And and 
Yeah, and you aren't telling anyone who you are or where you're living. Like, yeah, you're very much in hiding at this point. Like, like, um, so someone is trying to find you. Um, and you. <laughs> and, and me. <laughs> yeah. you talk about the two of us. Yeah, well, and so, yeah, yeah. And fortunately, I mean, on, on your end, we, Axel and I keep in touch almost every day. To talk about, you okay? You good? Like, check in, make sure, yep, okay. Haven't seen anything sketchy, whatever. But um, I was told by the government of Mexico City at the time, hey, look, we're going to station these police patrol out in front of your building, but just so you know, we're not going to tell them they're guarding you. They know they're supposed to be on this corner. But if we tell them that they're guarding you, they can be bribed into giving you up. So if they ever start knowing your name, coming around, asking about you. That's a very bad sign and you need to let us know. Okay, so fast forward a few more months. Um, <laughs> I, I got a call from my landlady and she said, uh, what have you been doing in your apartment? I said, nothing. I, I'm living here alone. I'm a writer and academic, pretty boring life, uh, nightlife most of the time these days. Uh, and, and she says, the neighbors said that the cops are coming around in the middle of the night asking about you by name. They want them to lead you up to your apartment because they said that they're getting calls about disturbances, quote unquote disturbances in, in your apartment. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, so what have you been doing? I said, no, I haven't been doing anything. And, and then I told her, I said, look, I had, the government told me not to tell anyone, but I'll tell you now. Like, this is the whole thing, the whole deal. And she said, oh, my God. Uh, she said, um, at the same time, over the past week, there's been a series of break-in attempts in the front door of the building. I just thought it was, I don't know, someone out on the street trying to get in or whatever, not a big deal. But she said, you're in danger. You need to get out of here. Like the police, that like, and so I literally, I was on the phone with her. I just sprinted straight out of the building. I, I was very scared. Um, and I had to stay with friends for several nights bouncing around the city until I could get back to the U.S. Unfortunately, of course, I did get back to the U.S. And you always ask yourself, how paranoid am I being? How real are these threats or not? Did you leave all your stuff? I, I, detail. Did you leave all your stuff in your place? I packed up some stuff. I was able to come back during the middle of the day, odd hours, pack up a little bit. But I had to leave stuff with friends in Mexico. And I had to, yeah, it, it, was, it was a very rushed, scary um, situation. And... Um, but I mean, what does it say in the end? It says that someone very important, someone powerful enough to potentially send a police patrol out to go looking for you is threatened by this book um, and and want to find us. You know, someone who can send a hacker to out to try to find Axel's location is trying to find us. And there's not that many people uh, in our book who who. Uh, you know, can do that, who have that kind of capacity. These are powerful people and they don't want this story to get out. And we've been accused by some critics again of uh, overblowing the importance of the story. Aren't we just being too self-aggrandizing? Um, and, you know, the thing is, there's also one accusation we faced was that we weren't listening to Mexican journalists enough or we thought we weren't, they weren't, we weren't, um, said that they weren't capable enough or smart enough, basically, to report on this story. And we actually made very clear in our book, there's a scene that we set where a very famous Mexican journalist, who asked not to be named in the book because she's facing threats from the Mexican government herself, she said, we've heard about whispers of Solalinde for years, but we can't report on him because 
the media is often controlled by the government in power and the political party in power. <clears throat> and so maybe if you all publish this book, then we can start doing the reporting that we are, have already been wanting to do and heard about for years. So I just want to make very clear, we don't think that we are the first people ever to uncover this, or, but, but we are some of the first people who have been able, privileged in my position enough, to say it and try to raise the alarm. And we do it not because we think we're amazing and we're the smartest and the only people, but in international solidarity with other Mexican journalists who are risking their lives, other migrants who are risking their lives. And just for the record, if you look at the news just a, a few days ago, man, the budget for a fucking uh, the news and all the publicity from the government, it's been reduced. Come on, man. They're randomly choosing exactly what needs to be out. Yeah. Well, and the, the thing is, again, you, it's hard to know in these situations how paranoid you're being versus how much in danger you are. But when the book came out in Mexico, three top national publications were initially very interested in reviewing the book, covering it, doing interviews with us. Um, one asked me to submit an essay to them, which I did. Um, and then all three very mysteriously just stopped responding eventually. One, one was on publication day, the, the day I was supposed to publish my essay. They said, everything's good, whatever, whatever. And then just never happened. And they still haven't responded to any of my emails, why that is. So again, like, I don't know. Paranoia plays a part here, you know, and paranoia is something that Axel and I have had to negotiate for years now. Um, you don't know all the time when someone is actively trying to sabotage you or when you just think something is awry. But it seems like these patterns of events between the death threats, between the hacking, between these publications that are supposed to happen and then got shut down, someone is being threatened. I, I feel comfortable enough saying. I, I don't know how you feel, Axel, but... No, no, absolutely, man. I mean, and, and, and Todd, um, at the end of the day, it hasn't been easy for me and Levi, man. I mean, if you ask me if I can, if, if I would if I would have the opportunity to go ahead and get the fuck out of here, I wouldn't have blink of an eye, man. I would. You're, so, Axel, you're still in hiding, right? I am. So the, these sorts of what you're describing here has not ended. Oh, no. Right? It keeps going, Todd. It keeps going. I'm, I'm going to... I'm fucking hiding, bro. Like, yeah. look where I am. I'm on the fucking middle of the nowhere, like, as usual. You know what I'm saying? And, and Axel has risked his life. To make these, I mean, yeah, me, I get, I got death threats, but I can, I can, you know, easily, I have the money and the passport and the blah, 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 to hop on a plane and get out of there. Um, Axel is a stateless person. He's risked his life. And um, I just think it's so important to, to remember that, like, and, and to, the most important aspect of this story is that Axel could have just kept traveling, been more self-interested or, or whatever, said, look, I don't have time for this. I've been deported. I don't have documents. I'm in a bad situation. I just got to keep going and do my own thing. He's gone out of his way over the course of years, risked his life every day now because he's in hiding. If they find him wherever he is, they can kill him. And he's still doing it anyway. And that's it just, I can't overemphasize that when it, when we're talking about the the, the book and the admiration I, I feel 
uh, toward him. I'm so proud and so blown away by his courage. Yeah, and that that uh, brings me, I guess, probably to, unfortunately, the last question. Um, you know, as where you're still in the kind of volatile aftermath of the book, right? I get that, you know, obviously, um, as we talk. And what do you want the contribution to be, like, of this book to be? And, and how would you like it to be going forward? And also, you know, in terms of, like, for yourselves too, but in in a general sense, what do you want, Axel? Todd, uh, you wrote a book, man, that is extremely amazing, and it's called "More Bridges." No, what's it called? More bridges, less walls. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Build bridges, not walls. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what do I want from from this book? <sighs> A better world, man. Unfortunately, it's not possible. But this needed to be said. And if it's going to take my life, because I'm the most, like, unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm not ashamed of saying it, man. I'm the one that is in the shit hole. You know what I'm saying? If it's going to if, if it's gonna cuss me my life and Levi gets to go ahead and just escape and somehow be where he is right now, fuck it. Let's be it. Somebody needed to do it, man. Yeah, see, I I don't like that. Oh. <laughs> no, man, I mean, at the end of the day, Levi, man, let's face it, man. You out there, bro. I'm over here. You know what I'm saying? I'm on ground zero. That's why when I hear people talking about, like, these articles and, and not, not understanding exactly how we roll, what are we doing? It's a little sad that they don't get the, the main point of the whole book. The whole The whole point is... Just let people know that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing and there's a lot of hidden stuff there. Yeah. <clears throat> but you know, this this idea, and you've said it to me several times, this this hope that you have that maybe you're doomed, but maybe I won't be. I don't like that. And and um you know, it's something that Axel and I talk about on again and off again. It's a very realistic position. I, I understand why you feel that way, but my goal for the book, a very practical goal at a micro level, is Axel is a person without documents. He's stateless. This book is an attempt to document his existence. To It becomes his document, right? And through the book, I what I hope is that you aren't doomed anymore. I don't know. Maybe Maybe that happens. But we're trying part of the book being out there is to try to not let that be the case. And... And to create a movement on a larger level, so if that's the micro thing, then the macro thing or the larger level or whatever you want to call it is, is to try to rethink politics very seriously in the 21st century as we have these huge problems in front of us like climate change, like massive wealth transfer to the upper echelons of society, like mass deportation and border militarization. Can we... Very humbly, because we haven't thought it all out or haven't figured it all out perfectly, right? Like, make a call to a different kind of politics and to say that, look, yeah, we don't have it all figured out, but Axel is risking his life. I, in turn, need to risk something of myself, risk my life for him to also make a political claim. Can we think about politics like that again? That's what we want this book to – that's the discussion we want, I think, you know? Is that how you feel, Axel, too? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, man. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much, both of you. Really appreciate uh, speaking to you and you coming on the Border Chronicle podcast and really giving this kind of frank interview that's also very vulnerable in a, in, a, in a time where, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going around for you. And I'm, Axel, I'm really sorry to hear that you're still in hiding. I hope, you know, to be a part of, you know, trying to find a better world where you don't have to be in hiding. And I know you have kids too, right? Um, have you, are you able to see your kids at all? Oh man. So that's, those are the sorts of things. Like I have, I have two little ones myself and, you know, the thoughts of being separated. It's just, you know, and that's not a world that I want to be a part in creating either. So I really appreciate what you, what you all are, um, doing and and thank you for giving your time and your words and i hope hopefully you know we could just keep this conversation going going forward absolutely that'd be great thank you todd Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com. Thank you.